You're listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by Simon Burns, CEO and co-founder. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays. For episode 10, we sit down with Kevin Caldwell, CEO and co-founder at Osseum Health. Stay tuned to find out what trend we'll see continue as the field matures. Kevin, thank you for joining us on First and Human. Thank you for having me. Let's kick it off with a quick round of introductions. Tell us about yourself and the background around Osseum. So I'm Kevin Caldwell, CEO and founder. At Osseum, we've developed a process for recovering and banking bone marrow from organ donors. We use that bone marrow to make therapeutics to treat diseases of the blood and immune system. We started the company about seven years ago, and we're at clinical stage. Tell us a little bit more about the bone marrow transplant space and some of the challenges in building in and around that fairly unique space. We often think of cell therapies as modern medicine. Many of them are, but bone marrow transplants have been around since the 1950s. It's in many ways the first true living drug. Even though the procedure is well established and it's been done about a million and a half times around the world over the last 70 years, there are still quite a few patients who go looking for a bone marrow donor and don't receive one. About 40% of all patients diagnosed with acute myeloid or acute lymphoid leukemia who go in search of a bone marrow donor ultimately don't find one. One of the initial inspirations behind Osseum was to dramatically increase the availability of the bone marrow so that more of those patients could receive transplants. Another longer-term and equally impactful application of Osseum arises from having ready access to very large numbers of bone marrow and the cell types that are in it for engineering and use in cell therapies. This could be anything from enabling people who receive organ transplants to live without immunosuppression by giving them infusions of stem cells from their organ donors to treating diseases of inflammation like graft-versus-host disease or fistulizing Crohn's disease. So all of these are things that Osseum is working on at different levels, and it's all rooted in this organ donor bone marrow platform that we've built. You don't come from a traditional biotech CEO background. You're a lawyer. You were at McKinsey for some period of time. You're at Bridgewater. Tell us about the steps that got you into biotech. And this is increasingly part of the fabric. We're starting to see more founders come from technology, come from different backgrounds. Do you think this is a trend that we'll see continue? I do think it's a trend that we'll see continue because as the field matures, the diversity of skill sets that a founder needs to be successful is only broadening. You need to be thinking about your ultimate commercial and market plan and the impact that you want to have from before you start the company. You need enough depth in the science underlining the company that you can put together a vision for how you're going to get from your initial idea to an ultimately clinically approved therapeutic. And you need enough familiarity with the regulatory framework that we all work within to be able to anticipate how to minimize the amount of time that it takes to get to approval. This is a skill set that really requires expertise in everything from bioengineering to regulatory law to the commercial dynamics of pharmaceutical markets. And so founders that have dabbled in a large number of different areas are going to be the best equipped to address that going forward. What advice do you have for biotech founders in general? You've been remarkably successful getting to clinical stage. Running a biotech company requires a series of different skills. What in particular would you give advice to new biotech founders around? There are a handful of lessons that have run true for us over the years. One is that 
Part of the power of our field in biotechnology is that in general, companies are developing products, whether it's a therapeutic or a diagnostic, that ultimately will save lives, that will improve the world in a tangible, meaningful way, such that when you succeed, there will be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people walking the earth who are able to enjoy their life because of the work that you did. If your team, people who are employees at the company, partners of the company, if they really live and breathe that, if they internalize that, it can be incredibly powerful. Despite all of the progress and the innovation that we've seen in the large-scale pharma companies, one of the shortcomings of pharma historically is not really conveying a public image to the broader world. These companies are fundamentally in the business of saving and improving human lives. If biotech founders can really build the mission into the daily operating cadence of the company, it's incredibly powerful for recruiting, for retention, for many things. Another thing that has proven to be very helpful for us is really thinking about our business model and our product as being co-equally important from the very beginning. One of the things that we at Osseum, rather than working on a single therapeutic and having one asset and one clinical trial, we really began by developing a platform, our bone marrow bank, that could be used essentially for dozens of different applications. Part of the reason for that is the nature of research is such that it's impossible to have too much conviction about what exactly is going to unfold before it does or how long it's going to take or exactly how much funding it's going to take to get there. If you can identify multiple complementary paths for ultimately having clinical impacts, ultimately commercializing and scaling, it will dramatically improve the odds that the overall business succeeds. Another thing that we've done is think about our pipeline as cumulative. And so what I mean by that is we have some indications that we're able to serve patients very quickly. So the core bone marrow transplant program, for example, a bone marrow transplant is a transplant. And from a regulatory perspective, it's looked at in much the same way as an organ transplant is. It's not a drug. It's not something that we invented. What we did was develop a process for obtaining it from any source. But because of that structure, it's possible to ultimately get into the clinic and treat patients and improve lives more quickly than if you had to begin with a novel small molecule from the gate. At the same time, we also have programs that we're doing in parallel that do involve doing further manufacturing and engineering on the cells that do require full three-phase IND programs. And then we have things in between. That means that we have some opportunity to begin to commercialize within the company's first five, six years, other things that unlock in the second five years, other things in the third. And that overall is de-risking to the business and increases the opportunity set. I would encourage founders to try to find multiple applications for the technologies they're developing. And while we think a lot about clinical trials, where clinical trials are broken, where they're inefficient, how to make them more efficient with a particular lens on how to use technology to do so. Now, as a clinical stage company, you've seen some of the challenges firsthand. Where do you think there's gaps for technology to come in and drive an improvement in efficiency? So before getting into biotech and before studying law or economics, the very first thing I did was study physics, actually. One of the great unlocks in mechanical engineering, which is built on physics over the last century, has been the transition from needing to really build a prototype of something before you could even begin to test it, to being able to, in a computer simulation, crash a car and get useful information about how the vehicle would actually handle the force of the impact without needing to even build a prototype car. In life science, the number of variables that we deal with and the complexity of their relationships is exponentially higher 
than you generally have in sort of traditional mechanical systems. To date, it takes far more computational power to be able to build those models, but that power is coming. As we approach a world where it's possible to build useful simulations that can tell you something about how your drug will behave before actually doing the experiments, waiting for your cells to culture, or observing your model organism for weeks or months, et cetera, that will have an enormous impact on the pace of biological research. Last question for you, Kevin. XBI went into a bear market before the rest of the market. It's now a couple of quarters that there's been a challenging environment for biotech companies raising money. What advice do you have for companies as they think about raising capital in this environment? What approaches should they take in terms of shifting capital allocation? How should they think about investor outreach? Really, any advice you have? I would say the overall theme of this market is that risk has been repriced. And we've moved from a world in which investors are optimistic about growth and particularly excited about biotech because of its association with the companies that pulled us out of the pandemic to a world where investors want safe, steady, predictable cash flows which is about as far from what a typical biotech, even a publicly traded biotech is, as you can get. Some things about the structure of this market are and will be fundamentally challenging because of macroeconomic factors that are beyond the industry. The practical thing, the most helpful thing for biotech founders to do is one, I'll say the obvious thing, minimize cost, because you should not assume that this environment is transient. I think the safer assumption is that we're going to be in this more difficult fundraising paradigm for a long time and to build to weather this storm. Two, and this builds on the point I made earlier, if there's any opportunity whatsoever to generate revenue in the near term instead of five, 10 years out, identify what that is and think about how to put resources against that because that revenue is going to be your best protection against this market. Three, I think there are some companies that raised in the 2021 environment and then got results in the 2022 environment that changed the opportunity set associated with those funds. Being really thoughtful about mergers and acquisitions and figuring out, is there some other group that actually raised when the market was better that maybe actually shouldn't finish their phase three program that you can combine with and reallocate those assets towards a program that you have that is more valuable those creative m structures out, it encourage people to really think about too. It is possible to raise in this environment. It's just harder. I think great companies with great data can raise. What I would say is that even though it's possible to raise in this environment, what is challenging is, is raising at the, the kind of valuation that you might have had on your prior rounds in earlier years. And so I would just encourage founders to be realistic about valuation and just focus on keeping the business alive. Well, with that, Kevin, thank you for joining us and appreciate your time today. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google, and YouTube.